All right, take a Bible, find Jeremiah 12. I told the first service with that song, Jake kind of stole my thunder. That's kind of what we're building up towards today is the idea that we ought to be people who trust the Lord. Uh, I could let you go right now. We could just pray and you could go home, but then you'd miss some of Jeremiah 12, so we're going to work through this passage. There's notes in the bulletin where you can track along. The subtitle of this series is Jeremiah the Weeping Prophet. That's just his nickname. That's what we remember him as. We call Jeremiah the Weeping Prophet. We've seen hints in the last several weeks about why we call Jeremiah the Weeping Prophet. This morning we put a major big brick in the wall for understanding why do we call Jeremiah the Weeping Prophet. And so we'll jump right in with this. Shortly after Jeremiah started preaching, it didn't take long before the men of Anathoth were trying to kill Jeremiah. So he starts proclaiming the word of the Lord, and there's these men of Anathoth. You read about them in Jeremiah 11. Our passage is 12, so I'm going back to 11. These men of Anathoth are trying to kill Jeremiah. They don't like what he is saying. They, the men of Anathoth, the men who live in Jeremiah's hometown, if you remember from Jeremiah 1.1, Jeremiah is from Anathoth. This is not a massive metropolitan center. This is a small tribal village. These are not just the people in his hometown. These are the people in his family. They don't like what Jeremiah is saying, and they want to put him to death. I'll be honest with you. I've been reminded multiple times in the last week that human beings very often do not want to hear what God has to say. They don't want to hear it. I've had people say as much to my face several times in the last week. This is what the Bible says. I don't want to believe that. That's what Jeremiah was facing. The men of his hometown, the men of his own clan, his family, are seeking to put him to death because he is simply proclaiming the word of the Lord. God's word is not always popular, is not always accepted, is not always celebrated, it is not always heeded. Many times it is openly and defiantly pushed back against. Jeremiah is experiencing that in this passage. Now when we go back to chapter 11 and I tell you that the men of Anathoth are seeking to kill him, it's pretty easy to read over those verses. It takes five seconds. And it's easy for me to stand up and say, the men of Jeremiah's hometown were seeking to kill him. But I just want you to stop and think for a minute, just for a minute, about the trauma that was involved in that scenario for Jeremiah. I hope that it's not a a specific trauma that you've ever experienced. I hope the people of your hometown, wherever you're from, have never tried to put you to death. I hope your family members have never gathered together at Thanksgiving and said, that's enough. We're done with this one. I mean, we laugh at it, but I want you to think about the trauma that that was for Jeremiah. It's a real trauma. He woke up one day. All he's been doing is saying what God told him to say, and he finds out that the people he loves the most are not only ignoring him and pushing back against his message, they are actually planning to murder him. It's quite a scenario. In fact, in Jeremiah eleven nineteen, Jeremiah openly says, I feel like a lamb, a sheep being led to the slaughter. 
I feel like just a helpless stock animal being herded right along to his death. I've just been trying to do what you told me to do, God. You sent me to speak these words. You said, this is the word of the Lord. Go declare it. I've done that. And now my friends, my family, my hometown, the people I love the most are seeking to kill me. He says he feels like a lamb led to the slaughter. I think in some sense we can relate to Jeremiah here. Not in the sense, probably, that our family and friends and hometown have ever taken out a contract on our life. I doubt that that's ever happened with you. But you have found yourself frustrated with life. That's where Jeremiah's at. He just looks around and he thinks about his lot in life and he's just frustrated. And if I could be so bold as to say, he's not just frustrated with life, he is frustrated with God. And you've probably been there. Some of you may be there this morning. You say, that's me, I'm frustrated with my lot in life. I am frustrated with what God is doing or not doing in my life. Maybe you say, I've been there over the last year. Maybe you say, I've been there over the last month. Maybe you say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Just wait. You'll get there. You will find yourself completely frustrated and befuddled and anxious about life, and you will turn towards the Lord and just say, God, I don't understand any of this. That's where Jeremiah is at in Jeremiah 12. So while none of us have probably had a contract taken out on our lives by our family and our friends and our hometown, we have experienced frustration with what God is or isn't doing in our lives, and that frustration is not just about life. It's actually often directed to God. So in this passage, there's a conversation. Verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, Jeremiah complains. And he says as much in verse 1. He says, I'm about to complain to you. Maybe you didn't know that you could do that. You can. There's a wrong way to do it, but there's also a right way to do it. And you can complain to the Lord. Jeremiah did it in this passage. And then in verse 5 to verse 17, God responds to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah starts the conversation, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and then God responds, verse 5 to verse 17. It brings us to the big idea. When you listen to this conversation, here's the big idea. When, not if, not if, when God's people suffer, they should, number one, lament. They should, number two, persevere. They should, number three, trust. When you suffer, maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you've been there over the last several months. Maybe you will be there surprisingly this next week. These are the things that you ought to do. Lament, persevere, and trust. I've told you before about my fourth grade teacher. I went to elementary school in Amarillo, Texas, Belmar Elementary. I had a fourth grade teacher. She was an imposing woman named Miss Redshaw, and she loved to say this to us. Life is tough, and then you die. I bet I heard it a dozen times a day every single day of fourth grade. And you know what? Fourth graders probably need to hear that more often than they do today. You know what? Life is tough, and good news, at the end you die. Fifth graders need to hear it. High school students need to hear it. College students need to hear it. Young adults need to hear it. Newlyweds need to hear it. Middle-aged folks need to hear it. Gray-headed people need to hear it. We all just need to be reminded of that from time to time. Life is tough, and someday you're going to die. That's a biblical truth. 
It's not exactly a quote from the book of Job, but look at what Job says, Job 5.7. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Have you ever sat around a campfire? The sparks go up. It's certain. It's sure. That's the way it works. And in the same way, you are born in this world, this fallen, sinful, wicked world, you will experience trouble. It's true for all people. It's particularly true for Christians. Look at what Peter says, specifically to believers, 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when, not if, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not something strange. She did not catch you unaware or unprepared. Don't be surprised when this fiery trial comes upon you. Paul says it like this to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.8. He says, we do not want you to be unaware. I want you to know this, Paul says. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, underline that phrase, beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And you say, but where's the verse that says God won't give me more than I can handle? Well, it's not in the Bible. There's no such verse. Paul says the exact opposite right here to the Corinthians. We faced an affliction that was so great, we were completely beyond our own abilities. We had no, we had no capabilities, no abilities. We couldn't handle the situation. It was beyond us. God put us in a situation that we couldn't handle. Why? So that we might trust in him, that he might be our comfort, and that we in turn might comfort others. Life is tough. Life is tough. Can I tell you the beauty of the Christian worldview? Beauty of the Christian worldview. This is not true for any other worldview, any other religion. Beauty of the Christian worldview is that Almighty God understands that. He tells Jeremiah as much. We're not going to spend a lot of time looking at verse 7 to verse 13. But in verse 7 to 13, God is talking back to Jeremiah. And he says, Jeremiah, you're upset that your family and friends have betrayed you. I know what that's like, Jeremiah. I know how that feels. Jeremiah, I saved a people out of slavery in Egypt. And I brought them into their own land. And Jeremiah, those people are like a roaring lion growling at me in defiance right now. It's what a shocking picture. God's people looking at God, growling and gritting their teeth and shaking their fist like a lion roaring. The people roaring at God. He tells Jeremiah in this passage, verse 10 and following, they're like shepherds who have trampled my vineyard. I brought them into this special land, Jeremiah. I planted them in this beautiful place, and they've just trampled it. They've destroyed it. They've made it desolate. I understand, Jeremiah, what it feels like to be betrayed. The Lord Jesus understands. We've talked about in recent weeks that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and familiar with suffering. He understands what it's like to suffer. The God that we put our hope and our trust in understands suffering. That's what God is saying to Jeremiah. 
in this passage. And what he's calling Jeremiah to do is number one, lament. Number two, persevere. And number three, trust. And so we're just going to break that apart. We're going to talk about each of those things as it plays out in this passage. Number one, when God's people suffer, they should lament. They should lament. What is a lament? Well, in some sense, it's a, a complaint. But it's not like the complaint that you post on Facebook where you get on and you just gripe about somebody or something or some business or some place and you just talk about how terrible they are. That's just complaining. A lament is a passionate expression of grief that is directed towards God. It is passionate. It is not just distant and academic and information-based. It is filled with passion and emotion, and it's raw, and it is an expression, an honest expression of your grief, and it's directed to God. There's a lot of lament in the Bible, a lot. In fact, there is a book of the Bible literally called Lamentations. Lamentations, the whole book is a lament. The entirety of the book is a passionate expression of grief directed towards God. The book of Psalms is filled, absolutely filled with laments, with the psalmist, David and others, passionately expressing their grief towards God. And when you read these laments, which this is what Jeremiah is doing here, the Bible's filled with this sort of stuff. When you read them, sometimes you come away saying, that sounds a bit irreverent. I don't think that you're supposed to say that kind of stuff to God. It just doesn't sound quite right to us on some level. But I just want to make the point to you, taking your grief to God is exactly where you ought to take it. What's the alternative for Jeremiah? If he's not going to take his grief to the Lord, where's he going to take it? Baal? Some people did that. They turned to Baal. They turned to Asherah. Last week we talked about Ishtar. They turned to all sorts of other gods and goddesses. Well, that's not what God wanted Jeremiah to do. If he's not going to turn to the Lord in his grief, what's he going to do? Go get drunk? Well, people did that in Jeremiah's day. People do that in our day. They face and they feel grief and it's real and it's raw and rather turn to the Lord with that grief, they just try to numb it away with substances. They try to forget about their grief. What is Jeremiah to do? If he is not going to take this, this grief to the Lord, is he just to bottle it up inside and let it turn to bitterness and rot him from the inside out? You know that people do that. They just try to grin and bear it and have a stiff upper lip and hold it all in and it just turns to bitterness and it eats them from the inside out. If Jeremiah is not going to take his grief to the Lord, what do you expect him to do? To do? do you expect him to just watch Netflix, never-ending, on repeat, binge-watching the next series and the next series to just forget everything that's wrong in his life? Wasn't an option then. It's not a good option today. Turning to the Lord with your grief is exactly where you ought to turn when you face grief. You ought to passionately express your grief to the Lord. That's what a lament is. Now, there's a good way to do it and a bad way to do it, a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. So notice what Jeremiah does. Lament, when done rightly, it always begins with good theology. Did you notice the first thing that Jeremiah said? Jeremiah 12.1, righteous are you, O Lord. 
if you pay attention to what he says in the rest of verse 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, he is essentially questioning the righteousness of God. But first, he starts with something that is true. He puts bedrock underneath his feet. He's saying, God, I'm about to have a very honest conversation with you, but I'm going to start with something that's true. I don't feel like it's true, but I know that it's true, and it's got to be the solid ground underneath my feet. Righteous are you, O God. He starts with something that's true. You see this throughout the book of Psalms. For example, Psalm 73. It's written by a man named Asaph. I think it's one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible. Asaph is lamenting in Psalm 73. He is complaining to the Lord. He's taking his grief and his confusion to God. But this is how he starts. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Do you know what he says almost immediately after that? God, it really doesn't feel like you're good in my life right now or Israel's life. I don't understand what you are doing, and it doesn't make a lick of sense to me. God, it seems like you've got the whole thing turned upside down. But he starts with something that's true. In your lament, you've got to do this. There is a place for honesty with God. We're about to get there. But the place you begin with lament is with solid, true, biblical, unchanging truth about who God is. Good theology. You're righteous, God. Regardless of what I feel right now, you're righteous, you're good, you're sovereign, you're faithful. I'm not sure in my gut about all these things, but I know that they're true because your word says that they're true. So number one, lament starts with good theology. Secondly, lament is terribly honest about suffering. It really doesn't hold back about the situation that you find yourself in. It's just brutally, terribly honest. Jeremiah says in chapter 11, I feel like a lamb led to the slaughter. And he says in our passage, chapter 12, the wicked are prospering. The wicked are prospering. I don't know if the the connections stood out in your mind as we read his complaint in verse 1. But essentially, Jeremiah has taken Psalm 1 and flipped it on its head. Listen to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted, the righteous man. He is like a planted tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that the righteous man does, he prospers. He is planted and he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. What does Jeremiah say to the Lord in Jeremiah 12? He says, the wicked, verse 1, are prospering. That's the flip of Psalm 1. And he says in verse 2 that God has planted the wicked. You've planted them and they... Their root is growing. They're prospering. He's taken Psalm 1 and he's flipped it on its head. He's being very honest with the Lord and he's saying, look, I've read Psalm 1. I know what it says about the righteous and the wicked and being planted and prospering and all the rest. But God, I'm looking at real life right now and it looks to be completely flipped upside down. Lament is honest with God. There is no place in your lament or my lament for being defiant towards God, there is a place in lament 
for being humbly honest with God about what you see and what you're experiencing. Jeremiah is not rebuked for his honesty. He's having a conversation with the Lord. Thirdly, lament expects justice from God. It expects justice. Look what Jeremiah asks for in verse 3. He says, the one request in this prayer, verse 3, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. Remember, he said, I feel like a sheep being led to the slaughter. Now, he's talking about his enemies, and his prayer is that God would pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. You read that and you say, that sounds mean. I don't think that you're supposed to pray that God would do that. Here's what you are supposed to pray. You are supposed to pray that the God who is perfectly just would execute justice. That's what Jeremiah is praying. These people are treacherous. And he's asking God to execute justice on them. You say, well, maybe that's an Old Testament thing. You know, we're in the New Testament. Maybe we're not supposed to do that anymore. Look what the Bible says in Revelation 6.10. This is very much in the New Testament, by the way. They cried out. They who? Believers who have died and gone to heaven and are standing in the presence of Almighty God. They're glorified. They're free from sin. They've been persecuted on the earth, and they're talking to God in heaven. And they cry out with a loud voice, and they say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. They're about to lament, and they're starting with good theology. Right? That's how you lament. You start with good theology. Yes, you're honest and you take your grief to God, but you start with good theology. You are sovereign, you are holy, you are true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? God, how long until you go down there and get those people who did this to us? You almost expect the very next verse to be God saying, oh, shame on you, that's a terrible thing to ask. Oh, why would you ask me to do something like that? Do you know what God says to the people? You can go back and read it. He says, just wait a little bit longer. Just wait a little bit longer. Why does that surprise us? He is a God of perfect justice. He is a king and a judge who never does what is wrong. Why would we not expect him to execute justice on his enemies? Jeremiah expected that. It is right to expect God to punish sin, and to be just. Lament expects justice from God. So we lament. Secondly, when God's people suffer, they should persevere. They should persevere. Look at verse 5 and 6. This is part tough love, part motivational speaker, part your seventh grade gym coach, part your dad telling you to put your big boy pants on. I don't know what you want to call it, but look what God says to Jeremiah. This is the first thing he says. Verse five, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with the horses? Jeremiah, you've been in the 100-yard dash and you're tired? I'm about to enroll you in the Kentucky Derby. What then, Jeremiah? You're already, you're already ready to quit? Jeremiah, you think the men of Anathoth are bad and this little silly plot that they've devised? Jeremiah, what are you going to do? It won't be long. What are you going to do when the king of Judah himself wants you dead? 
It's almost as if God is looking at Jeremiah and saying, Jeremiah, cheer up. The worst is yet to come. It's going to be good, Jeremiah. We're about to promote from the foot race to the horse race. Look what he says in verse 5. If in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? It's like, Jeremiah, you've been running in West Texas. It's flat. There's no trees in the way. I know it's a little bit windy, but you just got to run flat, straight ahead. You can see all around you. What are you going to do when you have to run in a thicket, in the jungle, in the forest? You're ready to quit now? God just kind of says to Jeremiah, come on, Jeremiah. Get it together. It's going to get harder before it gets easier. So you can't quit now. He's calling him to persevere. All of this reminds me of Proverbs 24.10. I put Psalm. It's actually Proverbs. Proverbs 24.10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. That's not a participation ribbon kind of verse, is it? If you give up as soon as it gets tough, you don't have much strength. God's calling you to have strength. He's calling you to persevere. Jeremiah needed to hear it. I think Christians in the United States need to hear it. Some of us over the last five, ten years have turned into a bunch of whiners. It's so hard to follow Jesus now. Do you know how easy it used to be to follow Jesus back in the good old days? Back before this guy was in office or this thing became law. It's so hard to be a Christian. They're doing all these things to us. They're making all, we're just a bunch of whiners. We're like Jeremiah saying, man, this foot race is wearing me out. And God says, really? Because it's going to get harder before it gets easier. You've been running against men. You're about to run against the thoroughbreds. You've been running on flat land. You want to quit now? You're about to run in the mountains, in the thickets. You can't quit, Jeremiah. Christians in the United States, you can't quit. You can't just devolve into a bunch of whiners. You've got to persevere. Now, in your perseverance, you can talk to the Lord. You can ask him questions. Just know this. Those who question the Lord in their suffering may not have all their questions answered. You can ask God questions. Jeremiah did. He asked God two questions. Verse 1, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? Verse 4, how long until you do something about it? Why are you doing it this way? And how long, give me a time frame, let me put it on my calendar until you do something differently, God. And you know that God doesn't answer either of those questions? He gives Jeremiah an answer. He just doesn't answer either of those questions specifically. God didn't answer Job's questions, did he? Job had lots of questions for the Lord. He had all kinds of questions. He just kept saying, if God would just show up, I could put him in the defendant seat and the hot seat with the lamp above his head in the dimly lit room and I could interrogate him and question him and I would get some answers. And then God finally shows up and there's a role reversal and God starts asking Job questions. Job doesn't have any more questions to ask at that point. It's sort of what Paul says in Romans 9. In Romans 9, Paul's talking about some very controversial things, and he knows they're controversial. He knows that people are going to argue and push back and object and say, I don't like it. And What about this? What about that? And eventually in Romans 9, Paul says, who are you to answer back to God? You can ask him a question, but you can't 
back him into a corner and force him to give you an answer. You're the creature. He's God. Yes, he can handle your questions, and yes, you can ask them. Just know that you're called to persevere even if he doesn't give you the answer. That's where faith comes in, right? I mean, we are people of faith. We're not people with all the answers. We're people with some of the answers, but we're people of faith. We trust God. When we don't understand everything, we trust him, that he's good and he's faithful and he's in control and he knows what he's doing. We're people of faith. It's the last thing that we're going to talk about. When God's people suffer, they should trust. They should trust. In this last little section, I think this is what what the Lord is driving at. Verse 14, 15, 16, 17. Verse 14, God says, Jeremiah, I'm going to pluck up my enemies. Remember, Jeremiah said, you've planted the wicked. And God says, don't worry. I'm going to pluck them up. Not always going to be the way that you think it is. In verse 14 and 15, he starts to talk about Judah. He says, I'm also going to pluck up Judah, and I'm going to plant them back in the land where they belong. They're going to be sent into exile, but I'm going to pluck them up, and I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to pluck up the wicked to judgment, and I'm going to pluck up my people and bring them back to this land. They're going to come back. And then look what he says in verse 16 and 17. It's a total curveball. I don't think Jeremiah saw it coming a mile away. God says, This is what I'm going to do to my enemies, Jeremiah, my enemies. Remember, Jeremiah's prayer was, lead them away like sheep to the slaughter. God says, this is what I'm going to do, Jeremiah. After I pluck up my enemies and my people, I'm going to give my enemies, this is what God says, the opportunity to learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name. That's not using God's name as a curse word. That's using God's name as the cornerstone of their hope. Not Baal, but the Lord. They're going to swear by my name. Not Asherah, but Yahweh, the Lord. They're going to learn the ways of my people. They will swear by my name as the Lord lives. Even though they taught my people to swear by Baal, now they're going to swear by my name. And they, God's enemies, will be built up in the midst of God's people. What a shocking thing. I don't think that's what Jeremiah really had in mind. God says, I'm going to deal with it. There's going to be plucking up, and I'm going to sort it all out. And then this is what I'm going to do in the end, Jeremiah. I'm going to go to my enemies, the ones roaring at me like a raging lion, the ones trampling my vineyard. I'm going to go to my enemies, and I'm going to make them my people. They're going to learn my ways. They're going to swear and sing and teach by my name, not Baal, but by my name. And they'll be established in the midst of my people. God told Jeremiah there would be an opportunity for the wicked nations to embrace the truth about the Lord. And I think for Jeremiah, this was a great mystery. It required great faith because he knows that God is a God of justice. He knows that it's right for him to execute judgment on his enemies. And God acknowledges, Jeremiah, these people are bad dudes. They're dealing treacherously with you, just like they've dealt treacherously with me, the Lord. But he says to Jeremiah, I'm going to bring them in. They're going to learn my ways. And I think Jeremiah is just sort of in a fog about how is all of this going to happen? How is this going to be the outcome? Here's the answer from our standpoint. This opportunity would be possible because another prophet, notice this is a capital P prophet, another prophet was led like a lamb 
to the slaughter. That's how God brings his enemies into his family. The parallels between the life and the ministry of Jeremiah at this point and the life and the ministry of Jesus are remarkable. I just want you to think about a couple of them. Jeremiah compared to Jesus. Jesus had a group of disciples that at one point sounded an awful lot like Jeremiah. Jeremiah's prayer is lead them away like sheep to be slaughtered. Jesus' disciples didn't go for the shepherding, slaughtering metaphor. They went for the nuclear bomb metaphor. Jesus, let's just call down fire from heaven on your enemies. They were right to expect God to act justly. That's a right impulse. They were wrong in that, like you and me, that easily gets twisted and turned and perverted into our own agenda, where we're using God's justice to accomplish our ends. We twist it, we pervert it, and it's not right. Jesus had disciples who did that. Jesus' own family, in his own hometown, just like Jeremiah, tried to kill him for preaching the word of God. That's what Jeremiah is dealing with here. The men of Anathoth, his family, his friends, his hometown are seeking to kill him. Jesus had that experience. He preached his very first sermon in Nazareth in the synagogue. It started out great. They said, this guy can preach. Oh, my goodness. And by the time he got to the end, collectively they said, let's kill him. And they physically drug him out of the synagogue to the edge of town and had every intention of throwing him over the edge of the cliff. They didn't. They didn't, but it wasn't that long after that event, just a few months really, that Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. What Jeremiah thought was happening to him and what he wanted to happen to his enemies happened to Jesus. If Jeremiah had been paying maybe a little bit better attention, he would have heard what Isaiah said. Isaiah lived before Jeremiah, and Isaiah described it like this, that there would be one, a a servant, who would be oppressed and afflicted, who would open not his mouth, like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And you can keep reading in Isaiah 53. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus dying in our place, bearing our sin, taking the wrath of God that should have fallen on us, That's how God's enemies get brought into his kingdom, into his family. Isaiah prophesied about it. Another prophet, one that lived many years after Jeremiah, also prophesied about it. His name was John the Baptist. John the Baptist said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was looking at Jesus. He said, That's the one. That's the Lamb from Isaiah 53. The one who will be led to the slaughter. Not for his sins, but for the sins of the world. God created an opportunity for his enemies to be brought into his family. He created an opportunity for you and me, people who are defiant and hostile toward God, to be brought into his kingdom and into his family. This is the heart of the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus was led away to the slaughter so that we could be welcomed in to the family. It's a remarkable truth, and it changes the way that you experience suffering in this life. 
It's a remarkable thing to think about the great lengths that God has gone to to bring us into his family. Not only has he brought us into his family because his son was led away to the slaughter, but he has now sent us out with good news for all the nations. Our nation, all the nations. And the good news is this. It is a brutally honest message. Life is tough. It's really tough. You are going to die. You are. So will I. We're sinners. The wages of sin is death. But God has offered you a free gift in his son, Jesus Christ, and it's eternal life. He is welcome you, welcoming you into his family because his son was led away to the slaughter. I pray that you've received that gift. I pray that you know the hope of the gospel, and I pray that sustains you as you express your lament to God as you persevere in the faith and as you trust in him. Let's pray.